from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. My uncle's telling her that, you know, they have dogs at the polls. And my grandmother said, and I quote, they don't make a dog big enough to keep me from voting. I didn't think we'd get this much money, in all honesty. Thanks to Mr. Vanker, the city of St. Louis is going to be assured a fine memorial. Those big courthouse doors must always be open into, even to the most disenfranchised people that can possibly come to those doors. I'm Sarah Fenske. Nearly nine years ago, the St. Louis Circuit Court embarked on an ambitious project, an effort to memorialize the lawsuits filed there by enslaved people and their lawyers. It wasn't just Dred Scott. An estimated 400 freedom suits were filed in St. Louis in the half century between the Louisiana Purchase and the Emancipation Proclamation. Those efforts are gearing up for an unveiling of this project this Juneteenth. And joining us now with a preview are two people working to bring this memorial to completion. Attorney Paul Vanker is the chair of the Freedom Suits Memorial Steering Committee. Paul, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we're also joined today by St. Louis Circuit Court Judge David Mason, who has spearheaded this effort. Judge Mason, welcome. Hey, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. So, Judge Mason, before we talk about this memorial and all the work you two have put into this, I want to talk a bit about the history that it details. A lot of people think that Dred Scott's lawsuit was a singular event. How inaccurate is that perception? Uh, actually, quite a bit. And for those who were thinking that, I should, you know, if you want to feel better, pretty much every law school in the country uh, did that when they would talk about the Dred Scott case. There was very little discussion about the fact that the Dred Scott case was merely the case that came along when the Supreme Court had enough of a majority to start to try to write slavery into constitutional law. That case just happened to come along. The Dred Scott case is what we call a freedom suit. The freedom suit started almost 60 years before emancipation, not the emancipation, I'm sorry, before the Constitution was changed after the Dred Scott decision. Mm. In those years here in the city of St. Louis, people were able, slaves, mind you, were able to go into court and sue for their civil right to freedom. You had lawyers who were willing to do it. Juries of all white male property owner and probably in some cases slave owners who were willing to follow the law that the judge handed down that said, if these individuals can prove that their slave master took them into a free state and held them there, at the very least until that state's residency requirements would have otherwise been met, then that slave became free at that moment. And the law that governed Missouri was the phrase, once free, always free. And that was the foundation of those suits. They would sue and say, look, I'm free. Let me out. That's what the Harriet and Dred Scott sued for. And Dred Scott, as you say, he's unfortunately become this really famous example because he had really, really bad timing with this. 
but other enslaved people were successful in these oh, lawsuits. Oh, yes. Uh, way more than almost 100 and getting there 150 were successful. And that's what drove me to kind of look into this because I'm, a, as I'm also a judge of a trial lawyer, and I teach trial advocacy at the Wash U. I've been teaching for a long time. So I was wondering what kind of arguments did these lawyers make to convince these jurors to order a slave master to free their slave? Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, a great question. I mean, that's right. an uphill battle with that kind of jury. Exactly. So I begin to look at it just from an academic purpose and, 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 and a, an interest in that regard. That's when I, about that time that I started looking at this is when we found all those old files in the Globe Democrat building that had been sitting there since forever and began to peel away the dust and reveal these incredible lawsuits and this incredible aspect of our city's history. And uh, that really took my interest. We have to memorialize this. We have to pay attention to this. And early on, the court agreed. uh, They unanimously uh, ruled that there needed to be a monument uh, at that spot on the the east side of the Civil Courts building. But then they also said, okay, Dave, go get it done. (laughs) (laughs) So they said, all right, we're all on board. This is now your problem. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a pretty big ask. I mean, I think we all know that in this town, it it can take a long time to get things done. And something like this, I mean, this is also a pretty complicated project. Paul, this is where you come into this. You ended up chairing the Freedom Suits Memorial Steering Committee. I'm curious if you had much familiarity with the details of these Freedom Suits prior to to signing on for this effort. No, I I really didn't. The first I heard of this, uh, the Freedom Suits, really was when Judge Mason was convening a steering committee back in, I guess, late 2014 into 2015. And at that time, I was the president of the St. Louis Bar Foundation. And so that was one of the places he went to to try to get some support for this uh, this great, great idea of his. It really was sheer brilliance on his part. Um, and so, no, that was <clears throat> the first I learned of it. But I, I will say, once I uh, started reading anything, uh, the, the least little bit about it, I was struck uh, by the courage of these uh, slave plaintiffs. Uh, and to a lesser degree still, I mean, the, the, the lawyers had to have some bravery and the judges too, but the slaves, the enslaved people had way more to risk, even if they won the lawsuit, quite frankly. There could be repercussions for their family members uh, in their own nuclear family as well as uh, beyond that. Uh, and so, you know, everything from physical punishment to, uh, as Judge Mason, if you've seen the video, uh, the phrase sold down the river, that's where literally that comes from, the, the much more cruel uh, settings of the plantations in the Deep South where no one could really know what was going on for yeah. the slaves, uh, totally out of the eye of the public. And so it, it definitely uh, spoke to me immediately, and uh, I've, been, I've been pretty passionate about it ever since. And, and Judge Mason, something that you had mentioned to me that I found interesting is you said this wasn't just uh, enslaved men that were filing these lawsuits. In many cases, these were women that were filing. They were dealing with these all-white male juries. Why was it that we would see women at a time when women didn't, frankly, have a whole bunch of rights, that they were almost more likely to bring these suits? Oh, yes. You, you might have heard my subtle reference to what I called the Harriet and Dress Scott case, uh, because Harriet actually drove the case. And that was really, the, many times, that was the issue. And the reason was that if a mother won her freedom in court, her children automatically became free. Now, that was, it was interesting that that uh, right followed a, a matriarchal ch- uh, uh, chain, I guess you can say, within yeah. the family. But that's how the law operated. Uh, because slaves were often broken up the way they were, the children were really the only ones that 
had any amount of time with a, a parent, with their mother, uh, because if the men had to be slowed off here or slowed off there, that's what happened to them. And so they would try to keep children with their mothers, and that way the children would get the care that they needed in their tender years. Okay. Uh, and because of that, if a mother became free by either the paperwork of the owner or as a result of a civil lawsuit, then the children went with her as free. And so these so, women had great incentive. To oh be yeah, in their and courage, suits. mind you, and yeah. and leadership. I mean, you're going to put a whole lot of incredible adjectives that would be true to the power uh, that these women were bringing. They they empowered themselves to fight for themselves and their children. And, and before we get into more about how the memorial is going to um, to recognize these people as individuals and what they did for this, you had mentioned this cache of, of records that had been found. Um, this is not just we have some general idea that these were going on. The actual uh, lawsuits themselves, these are still on, on file. That is correct. How did this all come to light? Well, essentially it was, you know, cleaning house, if you will. You know, we were in a situation where our lease agreement with the owners of the old Globe Democrat building uh, was becoming difficult to have that as storage space. So it's like, well, let's find something else. Well, we got to make sure we go through all that stuff and see if there's anything that we need to draw out what we need to keep. So literally, you had just regular workers going through this, and the clerk at the time, Mariana Favaza, uh, advised the court to, hey, look what we have found these old files. And at that moment, people begin to get a real sense of the history here. Mm -hmm. For a lot of historians, it was like discovering gold after everyone thought that the the mine had run dry. Uh, It was literally a historical phenomenon. And there have been books that have been written. As you see, Paul has a couple of them right there with him. Uh, And of course, attorney Anthony Sestrick wrote... Uh, the first book that I ever read on the matter called 57 Years, where he just sat and went through these files, just went through them and wrote about them for us. So it's extraordinary. It's a, yeah, it is extraordinary. And many historians take that position. It was really, it's like discovering historical gold. And so, Paul, all these historians had dug into this and, and figured out what was in these files. You have a number of books there in front of you focused right. on what was in there. Then trying to take this knowledge and translate this into a physical memorial, this becomes something that I'm sure is a little bit complicated. No, it really it really is. And uh, really, we saw that so much of this for me has been uh, – I've kind of learned that there's things I didn't know I didn't know. And it started really with the process of the request for proposal for the submissions for the sculpture for the memorial, which Judge Mason, I think the the circuit, his brothers and sisters asked him to get a request for proposal out there, and he did. And we had various highly qualified artists submit, uh, and I won't go into names, but they're, you know, craftsmen and women that we know. But Preston Jackson's submission was just really just head and shoulders above the rest. He clearly understood what was going on, and I've described what he's produced as a dynamic visual narrative, really, of the story. And it's a courtroom scene. Clearly, it's our old courthouse, you can tell for sure. Uh, Preston did a terrific job of bringing to life uh, that courtroom. And in that courtroom, there's a, uh, the plaintiff there, uh, the plaintiff slave or enslaved person is a female. Now, that's kind of a nod to the female's role and the significant role they had because technically during these suits, and get this, this is one of the shocking things about all this, 
they weren't allowed to, to be in the courtroom to testify on their own behalf. Even though they, the, the lawsuit was filed in their yes, name. That's just one of the crazy, we would consider crazy facts about these lawsuits. They could not. They had to submit by affidavit. Um, they had to have white witnesses to support them. It wasn't enough to have a black person support them. So it, it's a, like I said, it's just a, been a real lesson for me. So uh, Preston, uh, his sculpture is just terrific uh, in so many ways, has so many facets to it and so much symbolism. I think uh, you can have a, an art class and a history class right there walking around it, uh, I, I'm pretty sure. And then we also enhanced it, I think, by having it up on a pedestal, and we're going to have the names of all the plaintiffs etched in black uh, granite. Uh, all, it's about an eight-foot square, base four foot tall, and so all the names of these plaintiffs, win or lose, will be uh, on this base for people to see, to identify closely. And I'm sure there's people here in St. Louis who have, you know, who were descendants of some of these individuals. And, and so, so these enslaved people who brought the suits, these are people who, unlike uh, Harriet Scott and Dred Scott, these are not names that, that are common knowledge here today. And yet you guys are making sure that each of those names from these records gets on that. Judge Mason, I understand that you are yourself uh, a descendant of people who were enslaved. Correct. How does it feel to know that these names that, that may have felt so lost to history, that here they're going to be inscribed in this memorial? You would ask me the one question that gets to me emotionally, because I, I know a lot of, of what my own direct bloodline descendants went through. And uh, to, to, to look at those files and, and to look at the names, sometimes just first names, knowing what life was like and what it must have taken to file those cases, mm-hmm. it, 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 first it, makes, it makes me extremely proud. Mm-hmm. It makes me very proud to call myself. That's when I decided I was always going to call myself a proud slave descendant because my ancestors, and, and I'm including those who filed those lawsuits, we're not, you know, passive lambs led to slaughter. These were people who really understood the essence of humanity, which is the drive to be free, and were willing to take on the risk of the dire consequences, not only what their owner might do to them on the plantation here in town, but being sold down the river to the more horrible conditions in Louisiana and Mississippi. That takes a lot of guts. I think about the guts of the people who went and voted in the 60s, my own grandmother, heading out to go vote in 1966, and her, my uncles telling her that, you know, they have dogs at the polls, and those dogs are going to be there to discourage us. And my grandmother said, and I quote, they don't make a dog big enough to keep me from bolting, voting. That, that has, as you can tell, been with me my entire life. And all those folks that we are mentioning on this memorial, there wasn't a dog big enough to keep them from going to court. And that's what I love about them, and that's what I feel, and that's why I'm so happy that we're honoring them. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. 
Choosewood.com. Welcome back. We're talking today about the Freedom Suits Memorial that is being erected in downtown St. Louis. It's going to be unveiled this June. This is an effort that has been going on for years to make this happen. Honoring the history that happened at St. Louis's courthouse back in the years before the Civil War, up to 400 different enslaved men and women filing these freedom suits in a bid to get their freedom. My guests today are attorney Paul Venker, who's the chair of the Freedom Suits Memorial Steering Committee, and we're also joined by St. Louis Circuit Court Judge David Mason, who has really spearheaded this effort um, as almost a decade uh, working on this and bringing this all to bear. Now, Paul, you got involved. We can't have judges out there raising money. So this was going to be the role that you and some of these other attorneys would bring. How much money did you guys come in hoping to raise? Well, you know, we set our goal back in uh, May of 2020 uh, when we did the uh, video, the 13-minute video. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. But uh, we set our goal at a million dollars, which would hopefully hopefully get the memorial, the sculpture itself done, uh, the pedestal base, the uh, kind of the plaza, I guess I'll call it, a hardscaped area. It's got some perimeter benches. And also what we're, uh, the virtual learning center is something that's a website-based continual education uh, vehicle for this, uh, both that could be used on the site with QR code pads, but as well uh, remotely by anybody. And so the million dollars was our goal Uh, back in uh, 2020. We've raised about 600 and twenty to six hundred thirty thousand dollars so far, which, in these COVID times, uh, we're pretty impressed with the interest that people have, and it's, you know, our hope was that it would be a fully community supported um, project, uh, and it has been. Um, we have a total of about one hundred and forty donors. Uh, the donations range from twenty five dollars to $100,000. Um, I would say I'm proud as a lawyer to say that the St. Louis Bar has contributed a substantial percentage of this of the money we've collected thus far. And so their participation has been really, um, just really great to see. Um, and so we still need, you know, the, with the unveiling coming on uh, June 20th, uh, just this coming June, we still need probably around $200,000 just to make sure that we're not in the red uh, at the unveiling itself. Uh, and so we hope to continue on. And then, of course, there's expenses uh, that, ongo- that will be ongoing, such as the virtual learning uh, center itself. Uh, we've got some different possible liaisons going with different organizations in town who are interested in being a part of that and carrying it on perpetually into the future. Uh, we've incorporated the St. Louis F- uh, Freedom Suits Memorial Foundation as a Missouri not-for-profit. We're going to convert that to a 501c3 in that process to to carry this into the future. So um, it's been uh, it's been exciting, and people have been, like I said, very very responsive. Um, and I think it's a, it's a real tribute to the inspiring message uh, that this carries with it. So we have a link on our website that's stlonair.show. If you are inspired to give to this, we have a link uh, that goes directly to the St. Louis Bar Foundation page where they are, are gathering these donations. Um, it's good to know all these lawyers have their paperwork in order, <laughs> so that'll take you right to where you need to go to do that. Uh, Judge Mason, I did want to ask you that. You know, this fundraising really kicked off just a couple of years ago, and that's even though this effort has been much more long-term from your point of view. There have been some twists and turns along the way with this, and that's despite your passion for this project. What sort of slowed things down there between this kicking off and getting to the point where you guys were ready to ask for money? Well, one of the major things, major challenges I had was 
just informing people that this had to happen. It wasn't like saying, you know, can you donate to Easter Seals? Uh, can you, you know, you want to put up a, another statue of a, of a uh, St. Louis or something like that, things that people instantly understood. This was like, why should I care? So a lot of education had to occur, and, and I spent a lot of time doing it. And then I got set back a bit, you know, with, with cancer. I, those who know me well know I use them six, six foot five, and I've done a lot of walking. Well, cancer kind of knocked that down to four foot two with the amputations, but uh, I have this nifty chair that I can still get around in, so everything's okay there. But it did slow me down a bit, all the hospitalizations, things like that. And the fact that I was not uh, allowed under the rules of professional conduct to ask for money like this. So I had to get others fired up enough to do it. You had to educate them first you and, got then it. and then fire them out. Yeah. Well, Mr. Vanker didn't need much firing up. His, his heart was there. Once he began to learn the facts, his heart was there. And, uh, I mean, he really has taken off uh, and has motivated many others in the legal profession to join with him on this. And so I, I have to give him a, 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 an incredible amount of credit. Uh, I didn't think we'd get this much money, in all honesty, and we were trying to find the ways to ca- try to get this thing done on the absolute cheap. Uh, thanks to Mr. Vanker, the city of St. Louis is going to be assured a fine memorial. And yeah. so I just want to give him his, his props, as they say, uh, on this radio station. You know, this this memorial, it does seem very cool, and yet it's coming in at a time when we're all kind of grappling with history. There are some memorials coming down that sort of falsely uh, mythologized um, some of the past. And this is something that sort of forces people to confront slavery in a way that it, it's hard for me to think what else in downtown St. Louis, at least, does that? Is that something that has led to some uncomfortable conversations? People aren't sure they want this this black eye being publicized. Oh, yeah. There have been some... I, the Civil War Society here in St. Louis, which is a great organization, invited me to speak in Jefferson Barracks. There's this building with sort of an auditorium there, conference room, really. Uh, so I'll say there were maybe like, a, I don't know, 80 members of the society uh, but when I walked into the room, the the back wall was festooned with huge Confederate flags. And there was a table there, uh, Sons of the Confederacy, all right? And I'm thinking, okay, they don't know who I am. <laughs> if they think they can intimidate me. You know, I, had, I felt like my grandma was looking down and saying, you know, David, you know, don't you let this moment pass. And so I spoke about it. They quietly listened. Then I opened it up for Q&A. And, of course, they stepped forward. And they have a lot of challenging questions. Didn't black people own slaves and blah, 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 blah. And I explained to them, that's true, because there were a lot of freed black people. When they got together enough money, they knew the way to free their relative, the friend that they left behind, was to buy them. Mm. And that occurred a lot in this country. So understand why. And then I said, understand why your ancestors went in front of all those cannons, having their bodies torn apart, what truly happened? They were poor and didn't own slaves. They were misled into believing that if my ancestors were free, they would use that freedom to hurt your ancestors. They were told that the Civil War was a fight for their, the safety and propriety of their daughters and their mothers. Mm-hmm. 
and their ability to maintain their church. Well, it wasn't. It was all a lie. It was all about firing them up so that those who owned huge plantations, making money off the uh, textile trade in North Carolina or sugar or tobacco, they got to keep that money going. They got to keep those businesses going. So they fired up all those people. Hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives. It's a crying shame. And but that's their really answer, what their, happened. Their descendants are still fired up today. Exactly. They quietly left. In fact, after I was done, I went out. As, I wanted to talk to them some more. And one of the officers who was there to, was there to protect me says, well, Judge, they, they left. I said, oh, man, I want to talk to them some more. So, I mean, you see that kind of educational effort. Exactly. That, that's part of your mission here. Exactly. You, you're that's, not, that's you're not flinching from those conversations. I am not hiding from it at all. I am out front anywhere at any time on this issue. Paul, for you, do you feel like for kids growing up today, having this memorial there, people might take this field trip to downtown St. Louis. They're now going to come see this thing. They're going to talk about this thing that you and I never learned about when we were in school. And that's really obviously our, our hope is that it does become a standard stop on field trips in grade schools and high schools. And quite frankly, even just other St. Louisans who maybe don't get downtown as much as some of the other, if I happen to work downtown, and so I'm there all the time. Um, and to have those conversations, and it, it is a complicated uh, part of our history. That's a polite way to put it. But there are, as the judge said, you know, there was this, the, the law that allowed these enslaved people to sue for their freedom. But the once free, always free was really a judicial doctrine written in. It wasn't in the statute. Mm -hmm. So there were judges on the Missouri Supreme Court at that point in time in the 1820s who wanted to bring in, that was a doctrine that really went back a long time into English history even. When slaves were brought to England from America, they were free because uh, the slave slavery was not it was not uh, legal there. But, but here's the thing, there are people, and this is the struggle we see. And as the judge was talking about the Civil War, which is full of terrible, terrible things, there are people who did care and they did this. And then, of course, later on with Dred Scott, that court turned. But at the, at the trial court level in the city of St. Louis, uh, St. Louis County at the time now, because it was before 1876, um, the St. Louis jury freed Harriet and Dred Scott. Mm -hmm. The Missouri Supreme Court turned it back and reversed it. Uh, and so that's our hope is it just starts the dialogue uh, and have people thinking about this because I just don't see a way around us not trying to process this kind of, I don't know what else to call it, but abuse of people and, and try to come to a better understanding. And I, you know, I think some people um, might be worried that, that this is an effort to try to get them to own it. I guess what I've come to in myself is I really think it's to honor it. I think it's for us to understand, get the information, and honor what these people went through. And not just these freedom. This is a microcosm. This is a, this is a spark in the arc uh, of what was happening. I mean, it's, it is. But it's a, it's a doorway. You know, it's a springboard for people to understand better and to make change come. That's, that's what I think the entire steering committee is hoping for. Judge anyway. Mason, we, we've talked about what kids might take from this. But I'm also thinking about what lawyers might take from this. You know, Paul was mentioning that there were these St. Louis juries um, that, that did the right thing here in, in Dredd and Harriet Scott's case, that they said, yeah, they should have their freedom. It took a higher court to mess that up. What about the lawyers who worked on these cases? Do you think lawyers in St. Louis and, and throughout Missouri um, can learn from that work? I certainly hope and pray so, because that, that was a, one of my major motivators, particularly in getting the court behind it and getting a lot of lawyers behind it, because not only is that a monument to the right side of history, it's also a monument or a testament 
to how our history should be written moving forward. And lawyers, I hope and pray, when lawyers walk walk by that memorial on their way to and from court, they get a sense of the fact that in order for our democracy to be truly protected, those big courthouse doors must always be open even to the most disenfranchised people that can possibly come to those doors. That's how we protect everything we've worked for in this country. Lawyers are at the forefront. I teach my students, you're gladiators of a sense, gladiators of due process, protectors of due process, and understand that no matter how busy your, your case may be, your, your uh, practice may be, find a little time to volunteer some services to those individuals who are disenfranchised, unknown, hidden, but whose rights have been trampled on, and they just need a decent lawyer. Mm-hmm. Paul, that's such an inspiring call right there. I just, I, I wish every lawyer in the city would be listening right now. No, absolutely. It's so true. It really is. So this history that um, that we've been digging into today, we've only scratched the surface on this, as you two know better than anybody. Um, Paul, you've done such reading on this. I'm wondering if there's one book in particular that you would want to recommend, or two if you have to, well, I've got, uh, to people been, who want to know more. There have been a number. I mean, as Judge, uh, as Judge Mason said, uh, Anthony Sestrick wrote the first one, which was 57 years back in 2012. So that's the first of the books. He's a St. Louis lawyer. Uh, that focus is really pretty much on the lawyers and the judges and does talk about the plaintiffs themselves, but not as much as some of the other books. So the one I would recommend, and there's some out there, but I would say Before Dred Scott, and it's got a longer title, but Before Dred Scott, and then the author is Anne, A-N-N-E, Twitty, T-W-I-T-T-Y. This was in 2014, published, and David uh, Koenig, uh, professor emeritus at Washington University Law School, was one of the reviewers for this book because he is himself an expert in this uh, part of American history. So this gives a great, uh, it has a list at the end of all the suits that were filed, the parties, uh, the lawyers, and it also goes into this, the detailed and in-depth social aspects that we haven't had a chance to even get into today very much. But uh, I would say that's a terrific book. And again, if somebody just just uh, uh, Google's freedom suits. They're going to find a lot more than was on the internet two years ago. That's for sure. That's great. We're going to get a link to that book on our website after this show. So if you're interested in ordering a copy for yourself, you'll be able to uh, to get yourself up to speed on this. Judge Mason, this has been such a, a long, important effort, and you're so close to the finish line here. What's the thought you'd want to leave us with today? Understand that this is a nation that will continue to struggle. And to get past those struggles, we need honest, realistic leaders who are willing to confront fellow citizens who might disagree with them from the proposition that we all ultimately want the same thing. If there's anything I've learned, an individual who is truly committed, who is truly willing to Understand that everyone they meet, their heart and their mind, can be open if it isn't already. Approach them from that proposition and never run from the fact that you can make a difference. No matter what you think of your inability to make a difference, you actually can. And I hope I have students of mine or young lawyers listening Uh, young folks who want to work on some of these issues in their life and are wondering if they can make a difference, you can. You truly can. Well, St. Louis Circuit Court Judge David Mason, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure.
And Paul Vanker, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for your interest. And Paul is the chair of the Freedom Suits Memorial Steering Committee. You can get more details on how to contribute or learn more about this project. We also have a photo of the work in progress uh, with its sculptor. You can see that at stlonair.show. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.